0: Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way. This is a podcast for serious writers who want to develop their skills in artistry and stand out in a crowded industry by taking intelligent, creative risks. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I hold a PhD in literature. I'm the author of uh, numerous books, and I take a very analytical approach to art making, Emphasizing both efficiency and experimentation. This is the second part of my interview with GMB Kmicic, uh, and Gregory was kind enough to come visit uh, my classes at the University of Winnipeg. Um, University of Winnipeg, you know, was kind enough to make this possible and you know pay G- Kmicic a fee to be there. Uh, and it was um, so thank you very much to the University of Winnipeg itself uh, and to Gregory for making himself available to not one but two classes. Um, this is, as I say, the second uh, of these two classes that he visited. The first. Uh, you you know you if you missed it last week you can go to jonathanball.com slash 15 so it's jonathanball.com slash 15 the numbers uh, 15 and you will get uh, access then to the first uh, part of this sort of two-part episode each is sort of standalone Um, I'm sort of calling part one and part two but they are you know standalone interviews where we went through different questions uh, submitted by the students uh, so I had, you know, a couple of little questions of my own, sneak in there. But for the most part, these are uh, student questions either that are being asked by students and then, uh, or just submitted to me through the students um, previously. And I'm just kind of asking on behalf of the people who are too shy and uh, compiling, you know, different student questions. Uh, and so this class uh, was studying Kumi book, Midnight City, uh, Corpse Blossom, the first of his Midnight City trilogy. Um, but at the time of the interview, he had just published uh, the Baby Metal comic book, which he illustrated and also did some writing on. Uh, if you haven't heard of Baby Metal, or if you want more information on Kamichik and his work, uh, you know links to say Midnight City and his other books. Uh, I would recommend you go to JonathanBall.com/16. Um, that's the show notes for this episode, so you get some information. Kamichik and his books and you know his work and i'll link also to the, the band baby metals uh, music videos that uh, some of the character design in the graphic novel kind of bled into these music videos by baby metal so uh, really exciting interesting stuff um so john slash 15 is the first part with you know show notes there uh, john the ball.com slash 16 is a show notes for this part which are pretty similar um, and again, there's gonna be some links and, and you know to videos by Baby Metal and other things that Kamichik's you know connect to. Plus, you know, information has books and uh, and Kimi-Chi himself has his own podcast, which I really encourage you. It's my favorite podcast. Uh, it's called Super Pulp Science, and where he focuses on how mm. genre gets made. So he interviews uh, mostly writers and illustrators, but you know just other artists, uh, sometimes musicians, other artists who uh, are working to some degree in genre. You know, writing horror, science fiction, fantasy, uh, or you know, anything else in that whole genre wheelhouse. Uh, so, without further ado, here's my interview Kim uh, Thank you very much again to the University of Winnipeg and to Kamichik himself and to my students for asking uh, really wonderful questions. After the last class yesterday, when we were, when I was driving you home, we were talking a little bit about the, you know, how we were each, you know, struggling to. A schedule this time to write these novels that we we're you know separately working on and it struck me that if it was the same sort of conversation that I had with you maybe 15 years ago and you know my question is I think if somebody were to overhear a conversation like that they would have the question of like well wait a second isn't this guy a full-time artist an author now like isn't shouldn't this be easy like hasn't he made it Right. Um, Why are you still struggling to you know, schedule time to write these books when when, when your job is to write books?
1: Because, yeah, we all have the same amount haven't of time. Haven't
0: you made it, Greg? Aren't, oh, yeah, Haven't you totally. broken through?
1: Yeah, totally. Welcome to... Uh, You've sold tens of thousands of books. We made it um, with your hosts, Gregory and Jonathan. Um, no, uh, okay, so the analogy, what prompted this whole conversation is he asked how things are going and how I'm balancing things. And I described the process of writing and illustrating is a full-time job uh, in the following way. Imagine that uh, you are alone in a rowboat and the far shore is some point in your career that you are trying to reach. Now the rowboat that you have undertaken to row across the lake and you realize halfway, maybe a quarter of the way into the journey, has a number of holes in it that cannot be patched. So you're going to drown for sure. You can you can row as fast as you want, but eventually the boat is going to sink. But you have a pail in the boat with you. So you can stop rowing to bail. But you can't do both at the same time. So you can race for the shore as much as you can as the boat slowly fills up with water, and then you stop and you try to bail it out until it's light enough to row again. Now, some of you might say, "Well, you could try rowing and bailing at the same time." But if you did that, you're just going in circles. Right? And so In this analogy, the rowboat is the effort it takes to try and reach some point in your career. And the water coming in is what everyone else expects from you, right? All the time and energy and effort that you must dish out to people, right? The relationships in your lives take time. The relationship with your publishers take time. The relationship to build a fan base takes time. All of that, you're bailing, but you're not getting anywhere while you're doing it. So if you have to spend a whole day answering emails, you're now a professional email answerer, but you're not in fact a writer. And if you spend all day traveling, well, it's great to be a traveler, but you actually haven't produced any work then either. So it just becomes this sort of intense push-pull. The more, there are troubles with success, which nobody wants to hear when they wish for that success. But the truth is, we all have the same number of hours in the day and we have to divide them up so that we can
0: get things done. I always tell people, nobody wants you to write. Like the, pro- the hardest thing with being a writer is nobody wants you to write. Even your publisher doesn't want you to write. They wish you would just get finish that writing already.
1: So you could tour with the book. yes. You know. Yeah.
0: So like the action and your family doesn't want you to write. Even no. if they're supportive, they don't yeah. actually want you to write. They want you to have done that so they can support how you did it. Yeah. Like uh, like the actual like time when you're like sitting in the, a desk or and doing the th- and whether it's writing or you know painting or whatever it is. Um, like even when people are being supportive of it they they actually like don't truly understand how they're not being supportive of it <laughs> you know in in the sense of like um like the, they have an expectation of you like if you even if you're just home all day you have an office elsewhere yeah well I there's another know, thing that happens episode, there's lots of reasons for that but one so. reason probably is people would bother you at home. <laughs> well yes <laughs> not, not no. your, do you know what I mean like
1: my art practice is a sprawling monster that takes over rooms with mess, so it's better that I contain it in a studio space so that my family has place to live. Um, but no, more practically than that, I think that um, when we're undertaking to make things, you know, as our job, the people in our lives, um, or maybe I'll back it up, when we're young, and we're spending time writing or drawing or doodling or doing anything creative, people try to talk us out of it as a career. The moment you have some indicator of success, everyone who tried to talk you out of it for your whole life is now telling all of your, all of their friends that they've known you for so long and you were always like that and oh wow, isn't it great because you're one of their friends. Uh, And it's it's a tough position to be in to be, to know that people will not validate you until others do and by the time others do, you no longer require the validation of the people closest to you. It is a hard paradox as a creative person, for sure.
0: So this this kind of feeds into a different question that a lot of people had, which is sort of two questions. like, What was your greatest challenge as a writer or slash, you know, artist now versus starting out, like when you're trying to establish yourself, what was your kind of greatest challenge then and how did you get over it? And what's your greatest challenge now and, and how are you trying to get over it?
1: Um, I think those challenges are the same from day one till day, whatever, a thousand that this is. Um, You are constantly seeing yourself as an imposter in your own life. You're constantly asking yourself, is the labor that I've done worthwhile? Will anyone get it? Will they understand? Will they connect to it? And if they don't, then what was the point of it? And if they do, will I be stuck making more of this? Because now that I've made it, I'm done with it. I want to do something else. Um, those are the
0: same from day one till day to day, literally. So does it, does it get easier then? Because, because people, when I talk to people, they have an assumption that at a certain point it's easy. At a certain point you stop getting rejections from people. And I always point out that's, I remember once reading a short story book by Stephen King, and in the back, he has all these little notes about the short stories and when they were written and where they are published originally and so on. And he mentioned that one of, and this is one of his more recent books, like maybe five, six years ago. I, I remember like reading a story notes and it was like, this story was rejected by, and I'm like, Stephen King is getting rejections now. Right. You know, now that he's one of the most famous authors in the world. Right. Uh, he's still getting rejected. So I think
1: the big misconception about making stuff up and writing it down is that it's hard guys it's not hard to make up a bunch of stuff and write it down right the hard part is the business side of it right figuring out how best to have your work represent you that's an entirely different animal than making things all of you are capable of making something just as good as any of the books i've published and probably many of you much better than the work I've done. The only difference is that I have some experience in getting my work into the room. And people don't like to hear that as a truth of publishing, but that is a truth of publishing. They're, making stuff up is easy. Writing a book isn't the hard part. Writing a book is the easy part. That's the part you can do without anybody's input. All the other steps require people's input. So even Stephen King, who is getting rejected, he's getting rejected because that story is being sent to a collection or an anthology where the editor reads it and has to weigh, well, okay, Stephen King's name is something, but this story doesn't actually match our
0: purpose let of me tell you the, publishing this book. Let me tell you the precise example. Okay. <laughs> so it was a story Stephen King wrote about a guy being trapped in, in a portable toilet. And he sent it to the New Yorker. <laughs> You're right. There you go. <laughs> and, like, yes, he's Stephen King, but, like, literally the guy has to tunnel into the, you know, cesspool and out of the, like, like swimming through the field. <laughs> Why is there part of me that believes Stephen
1: King would have sent that to New Yorker as a, like almost as a gag? Like, if I remember right, I
0: might be misconfusing, but it was something along yeah. those lines. Right. It was that story though, for sure. Yeah. See, um, someone has summed it up at the bottom of whatever it that sucks. rumor <laughs> is there. It, just, it sucks.
1: Right? It just, it sucks. That part of the job just sucks. But no matter what job you have, there's some part of it that's no good.
0: But the other hard thing I think I would say, I I, I think the hard thing about writing in many respects is getting over yourself and doing it. Oh, yeah. And, like, of course, like, producing quality is, you know, is a difficult thing in a certain level. But I think the quantity is the harder thing for most people.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. You're panning for gold is what you're doing. So you have to go through a lot of gravel to find those. uh, You're doing NaNoWriMo. Yeah. Right. And so am I. So, for those of you who don't know, November is National Novel Writing Month. And so, uh, writers and non writers and anyone who wants to can endeavor to try to write 50,000 words in 30 days. Right. So, yeah, you, but that's not very much. Right. It's like if you did 2,000 words a day, you have five days off. Right. Now,
0: 2,000 words to just put in perspective people who don't. Write a lot of words necessarily. It's four I mean, pages. It, it it is hard and easy. Like it, it's not actually like I've written two thousand words in an hour, yeah. and I've had other days where like two thousand words takes me all day. Yeah, right. You know, but it, but that's, it, not it depends, the, right? that's not the that's not the words. that's That's your not fault. That hard. Yeah, or, or good words is not that.
1: No, good words are hard. Good words are hard. Words, but any easy. words. Like the point yeah. is, it's any words. Yeah. So to write is human, but to edit is divine. So you just want to like the purpose of. Um, you know, National Novel Writing Month is to remind people that the practice of writing is actually easy and the construction of a novel is actually hard, right? It's easy to get 50,000 words and when you're done, you have this pile of stuff in front of you and you go, okay, well, is there a story worth reading in here? And if you're lucky, you can edit out 20,000 words and be left with a 30,000 word novella that's of substance. That's my goal. Hopefully that's your goal. You're ahead of me right yeah. now currently.
0: I, I also find personally like fiction harder to write than nonfiction. fiction like, like I have written a, a whole nonfiction book in a month. Right. Like my, my nonfiction book was written, the first job was written in a month. Right. And that's an academic, peer reviewed book. Right. You know, like, so there's like high quality. Standards. Now was that
1: because on that. you only had a month to do it? Yeah.
0: Yeah, okay. And I did it in a coffee shop.
1: Right, like, basically. you just have to do it every day. Yeah, yeah it's because I had
0: a deadline. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't a publishable job, but it was close enough. To, it could pass, it passed peer review, and then they recommended certain changes. But I knew already they couldn't, I'm gonna to need to do these changes because I don't have time. Okay, I wanna ask
1: is there anybody in this room participating in NaNoWriMo? Is there anyone in this room who writes every day? Oh,
2: yes. Uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I write for fun. It's not really like a, a job. I want it to be a job. I also write for fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but like, um, I, I, I really enjoy writing, and I, like, I, I'm always like, thinking of different fictional stories to come up with. So um, I do understand the struggle of uh, uh, like coming up with something good, but it's also really easy to just like, put words on a page.
1: And good is relative. Right, so I could hand out a story, actually we did. We could hand out one of my stories and some of you would find it good and some of you would find it trite and some of you would find it drivel and some of you would find it amateurish and some of you would find it brilliant. Possibly in equal measure,
2: right? Also, it's it's like a, uh, a lot of writers usually are their own worst critics. Like they'll write something and they'll just be like, this is horrible. And then they'll show it to someone else and they'll read it and they'll be like, what are you talking about? This is amazing.
1: Yeah, while you're making it, you think you're a genius. And as soon as it's finished, you're sure that it's terrible. Right? Yeah. That's just, that's just, but that's not up to you. Whether it's good or bad is not up to you. It's up to the people you submit it to. And though that submission is based on a particular agent or often intern going through a slush pile. Whether they had coffee before they read it or after could be the difference between they passed it up the stream to the editor, right? Because they were alert enough to get what you were really trying to do or not.
0: What's the most interesting rejection that you received? Uh,
1: most interesting rejection?
0: Mine was a, 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 yeah, I have a few. somebody had requested, I submit a story to them, I submitted it <laughs> no, no, no. and no, then they sent me a re- form rejection letter but it had a handwritten note on the bottom and the handwritten note said, sorry I love this story but everyone else hated it. Nice. Um, so there are different kinds of rejections
1: uh editorial rejections where like no this story doesn't fit and then there's like fan rejections we were talking about this one yesterday a little bit where i had a book that came out early on in my you know career i'm hanging air quotes over this uh as a writer called the imagination manifesto and it was a collection of all these different stories and you know 80 percent of the content had female lead characters in it. And somebody came up to my table at a convention and started yelling at me. Like their rejection was of the way I approach comics. Women do not have a place in comics. They don't have a place as a character. And you should know better as a man than to write women into comics. And I'm just like, don't know what's happening, right? But they're holding the book. And I, for the first time ever, I realized that they had bought the book. They had read the book. And having done both of those things, they were actually entitled to their opinion, whether I agreed with it or not. Like they had everything that they needed to have done in order to be mad at me. They didn't like its content, they had bought it and they had read its content, so fine. So I listened, I told them that exact thing. I said, listen, you read it, you paid for it. I disagree with you entirely, but they just kept going on and on and getting more and more angry to the point where I just said, excuse me, sir, like, I need to ask you to leave. Because clearly, you don't want anything from me except to be mad. And he's like, no, no, I do want something. I was like, what are you here for? I'm here for the next book in the series. (laughs) Right? So uh, these rejections that you get sometimes are the kind where you're trying to get in the door, right? Please just let me in so that I can break through and publish something. And the rejections you get after it's out are far more bizarre, right? Because of the entitlement of the reader.
0: So how does it feel to... To one of the core questions, a number of people have is like, how does it feel to connect with an audience, and how do you deal with criticism? Like, if you get a bad review, for example, do you read them? I don't. How do you respond? And you know, you don't respond, of course. But like, to personally, how do you respond?
1: So, um, just like a year or two ago, I found out about Goodreads. (laughs) Like, somebody was like, "Hey, yeah, I left a review for you on Goodreads." I was like, "On what?" And they're like, "Yeah, Goodreads. It's like you know, people review books all the time." I was like, oh, no, <laughs> there's a place where people, <laughs> oh, no. So, um, yeah, I, I am interested in engaging with individuals about the work. And because I do 20 to 25 conventions or, um, you know, show appearances a year, I have access to and talk with on a yearly basis thousands of people who have engaged with the work one-on-one, face-to-face, five to face 5 or 10 minutes at a time. Those are the only reviews i'm interested in i originally when i started working on apocrypha i was like oh i'll make a reddit account and i'll go on to reddit because there's a big community talking about the book and then i saw that someone was like yeah he has a wife and a kids and here's some pictures of them and here's the, i was like whoa i'm out of here this is messed up but it's not it's just how people connect to things and i have social media and i did put those pictures out there and what did i think was going to happen right so i disengage with the review process, except on a one-to-one level. Because on a one-to-one level, if someone like really dislikes something and they have a strong reason for it and they took the time to come and see me about it, I'm not, it's not my job to change their mind. It's merely to listen and if if I can, if they're, if I think their criticism is valid, I simply say, well, I agree with that criticism. I actually tried to do better in this work on that particular point. or. No, I don't think you should read any of my other stuff because I pretty much, that's me in a nutshell, right?
2: Isn't it better as a writer to get, uh, uh, like negative criticism than no criticism at all?
1: Uh, so yes, but I'll quantify that. The way the Amazon system works is 50 reviews is super good for you. If you can get 50 reviews, the discoverability of your book goes through the roof, whether they're good or bad, right? Because the assumption is that someone has bought the book and they're buying the book and sometimes like Fifty Shades of Grey has thousands of bad reviews but millions of sale copies, right? So whether you love it or hate it, yes, it's true that discoverability goes up even if you hate it, but I don't think there's anyone in this room that would like to be known for being hated,
0: right? So i don't mind it like i I, 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 yeah as a university professor you're qualified i'm not that i'm hated but like i I recommend to in my career writing classes i I say to people like you can't be somebody's favorite band unless you're somebody's least favorite band and so i recommend people divide the audience as quickly as possible like do whatever you can to divide an audience rather than trying to um like please everybody yeah you can't please yeah and so it's you can't please everybody. So, like the thing that somebody's going to hate, like like for your work, for example, you have very unique visual style, and it's it's the kind of style that is tailor. You're probably not thinking this when you're doing it, but it's the kind of style that is like constructed in a way that some people are going to love it, and other people will just hate it so much. That's absolutely true. Yeah. And there's not going to be yeah. a lot of in between. And right. I think that's the position. I personally think that's the position people. Yeah, I sometimes be
1: in. get. Like, you know, those one-to-one reviews where it's like, oh, man, I really like the story. I wish you could draw. <laughs> right? Because I usually buy books for the art. You know, I kind of stuck around for the story. But I don't know if I'll buy the next one. And I'm like, why don't I just color over? I'll just scratch out all the art and just leave the story for you. Would you buy it then?
0: So, yeah. Did you ever have, though, when you were you know younger and people were telling you this, like you don't know how to draw, you don't know what you're doing, yeah. this isn't what comics look like. Like, did you ever have, like, the thought like well maybe i should try to draw more like the marvel way or, or something along the way you know what i mean like so as a
1: young person you know like in a middle school kid drawing all the time i was trying to draw the marvel way my most uh, original comic i can remember i was probably in grade five and during the summer i labored just oh man and i was convinced of my own brilliance so here was the basic story here he's a big strong guy okay and uh, he's purple, and he wears green pants, <laughs> all right? And he's called The Bulk, <laughs> and man, this is going to fly off the show. It actually, in a way, was my best-selling book, because I made three copies, and I sold them at school, so in a way, that part's good. But uh, yeah, and you tried to draw the Marvel way, but I was not good at it, because I don't have a sensibility... The thing about the Marvel way of drawing or the DC way of drawing, like those house styles, they're built on a certain type of labor of 10 hours a day at the drawing table, no exceptions, right? And if you want to have anything else that you do other than be an illustrator, you can't do it that way. I I couldn't.
0: But you have a very labor-intensive style in a different sense. Like you're doing your own lettering and inking.
2: Yeah, like like I
1: labor, but so i will put in 10 or 12 hours a day but i'll end up with writing colors illustration like i get more out of my labor as a result of not working their way
0: but was it not a moment where you're like i can't draw spider-man how he's supposed to look i just have to try harder at it like so i uh, or did you but but because you didn't really go that route you were like you know what i'm gonna do something different
1: so the reason i I went different so i can draw spider-man so here's the thing. Uh, I can draw Spider-Man the way he's supposed to be drawn. And I did one as a commission for somebody. Sure. Spider-Man exactly how he's supposed to be drawn. But I get no joy out of doing something the way it has been done. So you learn it and then you're like, I don't like this. I can already do that.
0: I, yeah. Where's the
1: joy in that?
0: I had that same feeling where I won a big award. Or not a big award, but I won a, a, you know, a decent sized like, award for this poem that I wrote for my girlfriend at the time she loved this poem like she gave you the award no like i got an award like it was i got a 500 dollar prize and a plaque and all this stuff and it was like you know exactly the kind of poem that and she loved it and all this stuff and i was like this means nothing to me the award (laughs) yeah i was like this is like i figured out how to it was like like you say it was this validation so i like it's like validation that i'd figured out how to write the kind of poems that people write and i was like doesn't interest me
2: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: I find university papers are of a similar variety once you figure out and at least one of you in this room have been taught the way in which to game that system uh, by me so that you can be sure to get a B plus on papers on subjects that you for sure have not studied or read about, right, by just following the academic system the way it is intended to be done. If you regurgitate the system back at itself, you will always succeed. I find that to be you know they talk about academic dishonesty at the university level i find that to be the most academically dishonest thing that there is so you're right in that we both have a little bit of operational defiance in that we don't want to do it just because we can that's not to say that i could do a good so here's the other thing
0: but you worked hard to learn it yeah but here's the other thing
1: if you want to do a spider-man book right you have to want to embrace the themes and styles and storytelling that is in a spider-man book i won't thrive in that arena because those aren't of interest to me right so it's not me saying that that way of drawing it or that way of expressing yourself is somehow invalid it's just that we should each do things according to our gifts and just because I'm I can be good at math by putting lots of labor into it doesn't mean I should be an accountant right because I won't derive satisfaction in my life just because I can accomplish something I feel that the accomplishments we have in our life is when we pair up the things we enjoy doing, the things we don't mind working hard at, and the things that we're good at, in that little space where those overlap, if you can carve a career out, then my goodness. Then you can be hit by a bus the next day and still be glad.
0: So i want to jump in with some other questions at all. Uh...
1: Big or small, they Big can be small. like, stir- yes.
2: Jump, I applied, but I'm going to. Um, what is, like in your career, what would you say is like the biggest risk
0: that paid off and also blew up in your face? Oh, being a teacher! Oh, <laughs> you worked nice. hard to become a teacher. Yeah, I worked really I hard to become a teacher. You, you, you know, didn't you not well you, well. you can tell the story, but you got thrown out of university. <laughs> well, oh yeah, well that's a whole other story. You, it took you yeah. a while to get into the program. Yeah, so also.
1: Um, so paraphrasing. Okay, so let's just address the question. Uh, something that sort of blew up in my face or something that I I didn't know would be the way it was, is being a teacher. So I wanted to be a teacher. I love teaching. There is almost no joy greater than the trust that can be built from a room full of people who don't know each other, all becoming better and able to go out into the world a little bit better. Like if there's a high watermark in human civilization, I don't know what it is, but education itself gets in the way of that great experience because of the system involved. And so, I wanted to build a day for myself where I could write every day, I could illustrate every day, and I could have interactions with people every day. And so I could write and illustrate on my own time, I could teach in my day-to-day, I would have a job that covered all the monthly expenses and needs of my family, and that would be great. And it ran pretty good for about 10 years. And then what happened was, um, as is wont to do, once I had 10, 15 books out, you know, publishers are saying, like, why don't you support them? I'm like, well, I do support them. i made the damn things, right? And they're like, no, you have to be out in the world supporting these books if you want them to reach that next level. Um, So, you know, I was in a hard spot trying to make that decision. And then I had, you know, five family funerals to go to in one year. And that really underlines that the real cost of anything is the amount of time you spend on it. And I just realized that I had already done 10 years. I'd given 10 years to 1,000 people. And so I'm going to...
0: Double really, down. I remember you really kind of struggling with it for a certain period yeah. there, and I, I remember my advice to you was like, you could just get another teaching job. <laughs> like, yeah, like, yeah. You were like, quit because teaching is easy. Well, relatively speaking.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's true. Well, I, you, does that answer your question? I think you, what you really wanted was related to writing and illustrating, though. So. Um, well, that works. That's fine. The, to give a a more cogent answer for the rest of you maybe um, the struggle that you're going to have if you decide to do something that is creative is that only you will understand what it's supposed to look like and you won't be able to convince anybody that it's valid until you've already made it telling someone that your book is going to be good or that it's going to be about this or that it's going to fit into this reading level that is valueless both to a publisher and to an agent holding a book and letting them read it and decide, yes, in fact, you can do this thing, right? Your first book will likely be rejected and likely end up being a quote-unquote waste of time. But the time that you actually spent on it will have made you capable of proving to someone that you can write a book, period, which is huge. And that you can deliver something on time, which is huge. And that will open so many doors for you, right? Talent is not the isn't it's actually false the notion of talent talent like we talk about wayne gretzky right oh the most talented hockey player ever he traded his childhood to be good at hockey he worked every day at hockey so he traded time to be good at this thing and we're like wow what a talented guy right that's nonsense right what are you willing to trade away right for a different opportunity that's the only thing of value here
0: Again, anyone can jump in with a question any time. Otherwise, I'm going to, sh- like, ask some of your questions from my list.
1: Give them a moment. Yes.
2: I was just thinking, um, uh, you said that you uh, worked as a, as a teacher. I was wondering what you see as most essential to, like, an, in, an individual's growth.
1: What do I see as most essential to an individual's growth as a teacher? Uh, self-reflection. The ability to look inward at the mistakes and the... Um, patterns in your own life. That if you can convince a young person that the things that are happening are not happening to them, that they're just happening, and how they respond to those things will change their situation, right? That the world isn't happening to them, that they are happening in the world as well. That you can send people on some pretty great paths. I think. Anyway, does that answer your question? Yeah. Question?
2: Uh, you recently released a uh, Baby Metal comic. I did. Um, I'm <laughs> right. curious. Uh, Could you tell us a story of how that came to be?
1: Uh, is anyone here familiar with the band Baby Metal? A few, yeah. Fervent hands strike the air. Okay, so for those of you who don't know, Baby Metal is a heavy metal band out of Japan. Um, you know, it's a old adage that if you can be big in Japan, then you've made it. So I don't know. Maybe that's what he's talking about when he says "I've made it." Um, they're a heavy metal band that. So the story of my working with them goes like this. I went to New York Comic Con and at the aisle across from me was the publisher Z2 Comics. We did not know each other at all. Uh, We got along pretty well. We had a similar sense of humor and we spent five days together across the aisle from each other. Um, We went out for pizza. Josh Frankel um, knows the best pizza in New York, like legitimately, every New Yorker claims to. I think he may in fact know the truth. And so we went out No business talks whatsoever. We just went out all together. My wife was with me at the time and she often doesn't want to hang out with comics publishing folks, but in this particular instance she thought they were funny too. So we went out. We spent some time together. End of story. And then a few months later, um they had approached Baby Metal about doing a graphic novel. Coba Metal presented them with some work, like a style of work that he wanted to look like. They said, Oh my god, we know that guy. We got to figure out how to get in touch with them again. We know that guy, you know, we spent some time with him in New York. Now it wasn't that Koba showed them my work. He just showed them stuff that was visually similar, right? Which is what you do when you're pitching a project. you often present a mood board, which is like a bunch of stuff that makes you feel like the way you want the project to look. You give that to the publisher, they go find the people. So that was sort of the long uh, preamble of how I got involved. And then I was told you have three or four months that you can make a few test pages. Uh, which was great because I was just about to go on vacation with my family. Uh, we we're going to a music festival and then I get this phone call where, uh, one of the publishers was like, Hey, remember when we said we'd give you a long time to work on those test pages? I was like, yeah. Do you think you could have them by tomorrow morning? <laughs>
2: nice.
1: And I was like, w- like how many pages? Like, not that many, just like five or so. Just to put it in perspective, five would take you how many, how long normally? normally it's a page a day is what you do. Like a page, a labor. You labor for a day and you can produce a page of illustration. They said like, hey, do you think in 24 hours you could produce five of these things that we could show? And the reason being was that they had this sudden opportunity to meet face to face with the the decision makers involved. And they really wanted to, you know, step up their game. So it meant that I had to step up my game. So I simply told my, and I told them like, well, I'm at a thing with my family and family's gotta come first here. So you can have all the hours between when they go to bed and they wake up. I'll work for you. I'll be on Japan time today. And that's what I did. I, my, you know, we went home, my wife went to bed and I'll say, I'll see you in the morning. <laughs> and I stayed up working all night and sent them stuff so that they could have it in the meeting the next morning that they were having. And, um, you know, you have, to, I guess the, the point of this, the thread of this whole conversation is you're trading something for something else, right? Uh, you don't eliminate, you have to transmute. So, yes, I have the capacity to work quickly if I can be uninterrupted. Well, no one will interrupt you if they're asleep. So, my family was asleep, and all I had to do was stay awake to get it done. And the work was not my best work, but it was, um, they did not require my best work. They required a work that reflected the um, concept that they were presenting. So, conceptual art is a lot different than panel to panel work. If you have to do five pages of sequential illustration and you can do that in one day, well, I don't know who you are, you're some sort of god of illustration because everything has to fit and all has each illustration has to be thoughtfully connected to each other illustration. That's not what they were asking me to do. They gave me a broader uh, sort of concept and they said make five pieces that fit into this concept and then I had a lot more freedom to have at her. Um, and then we went to the music festival for the rest of the next day. I did not sleep first, we just went. Right. Yeah, that was a hard day, <laughs> yes. Any other questions about that? Yeah. Um, so I
2: see you have a lot of like local, like it's night market. Night yeah. Night market stuff. Do you ever feel kind of like odd, like trying to sell your
1: own stuff to people? Like, yes. You know, just- so the question uh, for the microphone up close is, do you ever feel odd having to be the person who is selling their stuff direct to the individual? That's actually my favorite part.
2: Really?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Because love it or hate it, people feel something. So, like, if you have your art display set up in a place that people aren't used to seeing that kind of art, and they walk by, and they have this sour face like you've just farted or something, like, and they're just trying to get past, I love it because I've overridden their mind, right? Like, I've hacked their brain, and whether they wanted to or not, they have to be in this world, and they don't like it, and they can't wait to leave. Sometimes people come, and they they pause in front of it, and they're like, wow, I really, like this is a place for me. And that also lifts me up. The ones that hurt the most are the people who walk by as if none of it matters. Right? The, like, love it or hate it, as long as you feel something, I'm validated as an artist. If you're like, eh, and walk on, right to my heart, like right to the the muse is, has a finger cut off that day. So, there's, I've given you my kryptonite. Right, Just pretend like it doesn't matter at all. Yes?
2: Uh, you have a really particular
0: illustration style. How did you go about developing for
1: uh, how did I develop the illustration style so
0: can um, they looked at the first midnight city books so if you have like a specific example from there you might yeah well might, well I say is this the process
1: that when I was first trying to get into education uh, and I didn't get in the first time I had the um, great fortune of taking a class with Diane Thornacroft she had a like a six-hour drawing course and I got really interested in this this thing, this process called xerography, where you try to illust- make illustrations out of xerox copies of existing photographs by manipulating the xerography to create a new piece, and then you collage that thing into a new composition. Uh, I burned up so many of those like cards, you know, those like oh man, so many. I pro- I probably spent a thousand dollars on photocopies that year. Um, now, keep in mind, yes, Photoshop existed at this time. It wasn't that I couldn't be doing it that way. It's just that I was fascinated by the physical process of making this stuff. And so for one assignment, I fell into this thing. So school is good in that regards, guys. Sometimes you push pushed out of your comfort zone. You can discover all kinds of new things. Um, but then I realized that illustration in and of itself is the ability to pair one image to another in sequence, right? It's space for time, right, as Scott McCloud says. So you can't just have non-sequitur images one after the other. And so then I realized, well, I'll have to pair my love of drawing with my love of collage, and then I will try to find a middle ground where I hope that sometimes the viewer can't tell if it's drawn or pulled from a photograph. And in some instances, what you guys think is a photograph is actually a drawing that I've spent too long on. And other times when you're like, oh, yeah, that's just a quick little drawing is actually me cutting up stuff and putting it all together as a collage. So it really depends. Um, yeah.
2: Um, in your book, Midnight City, Corpse Blossom, uh, the character, the luckiest man alive, says there are no superheroes. What do you mean by that?
1: Um, well, there aren't any superheroes, right? Like there's nothing super about what he does. In this particular book, the notion of uh, the plucky, uncorruptible hero right, is presented as false. right? Like he does what he does as a power trip, you know, like he's a veteran who wishes he could still shoot people, right? And so he puts on a mask and now he gets to shoot people again and they call him a hero, right? There's nothing particularly super about that,
0: right? This kind of connects to a theme I see almost all the time in your work, which is, which is, there's often some point in the story, um, if not directly in the middle of the story, um, where characters discover that things are the absolute opposite of how they appeared to be. So, you thought they were a hero; it turns out they're a villain. You thought, you know, this you know monster god was doing X, but actually was trying to do Y. Like you, you often have these uh, this idea you're off, you seem obsessed thematically uh, to me and it's in this book but also some of your other work with the idea of things appearing a certain way but then you look at them from a different perspective and they seem totally different I'm just curious like to know like why you're so drawn to that concept that that kind of relativistic uh, way of looking at things
1: so to restate your question what's wrong with me
0: well, what like, what, what, yeah, in a certain sense. Like, why, why the obsessiveness? Do you see that as an obsessive sort of theme in your work?
1: Uh, it is because it's... Um, okay, so I've said before that I think that the creative process should be a meditative one. That you That making art for money is a useless endeavor. Making art for fame is a useless endeavor because by the time it's finished, you're done with it. It may have these other effects once it's in the world, but the actual process of making a thing should be based in self-discovery, right? And one of the things that I find the most fascinating about the world at large is the way that all of us present one way and behave another, right? And so yes, it's true that that theme is present because it's often on my mind while I'm working on things in the way that even I have to present myself as one thing and then behave another way, right? Like I present myself here as if there's a way to write stories and make things and get them in on time as if this is, some sacrosanct way of doing it. But if you tried to do it my way, you would fail. Not because you can't, because I'm somehow special, but because of all the things that are wrong with me that have made me make those choices to do it that way, that might be right with you, that make it okay for you to do it another way.
0: So just to kind of come back to that thematic idea a bit, I um, mean, I said you've got, I mean, on in, in one level it's a noir influence also. Right. The, the notion that people aren't purely heroes or villains, right. um, but there's somehow this everything's living in this moral gray area. Um, can you say more about your 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 noir influence? Because you see, you see it in this book, you see it in some of your other works. In this book, particularly, you seem to have like three big influences. Um, you know, Golden Age comics, noir, which typically presented a very clean like good evil dichotomy, a noir, which typically present this you know breakdown of that um, into this moral gray space and then Lovecraftian in which there's a just pure evil there's nothing else good in the cosmos uh, so it's interesting to me that you have these three influences diverging or conver- converging here and yet philosophically all those influences are coming from very different places
1: so your question is so, why put them together
0: sort of, yeah like what kind of drew you to bring those threads together in the first place because I didn't know what would happen if I drew those threads together. I thought it might
1: be fun to try. Um, That's like the high-minded reason, but like, if you dig down into it, um, I am somewhat frustrated with the body of comics knowledge presenting the golden age of comics as if it was somehow great. Right? It's kind of like, make America great again. like. The time you're hearkening back to was the time of the most class divide, the most racial divide, right? Like comics, when they first came out in the golden age, like the golden age of comics, most of the comics are propaganda tools that are just soaked in the most vitriolic racism that you can imagine and classism as you can imagine. Like Batman just gets to beat up poor people. Like that's all he does in those early comics, right? Um, if you look at how... Uh, The Chinese people or the Japanese people or the Russian people or any person of color is depicted in early golden age comics, you will be sick to your stomach. And so I wanted to take a bunch of those characters from that time and make them suffer. Right? Like I wanted to bring those characters forward and make them suffer in a way for their crimes by placing them in a horror story written by someone who actually came before that time. Right? Who like prefigured it. So H.P. Lovecraft prefigured this cosmic horror this idea that all your ideas of good and bad and right and wrong are just silly and it all is going to amount to nothing and so in a way i tried to punish the golden age of comics by making them survive an h.p lovecraft story and uh spoiler alert for anyone who is interested in getting the other two volumes you know you come for the heroes but you stay to watch them die
0: It kind of connected in there is this question. that there people, are, you, you write yourself in one of your prefaces I, uh, that world building is one of the greatest parts of creating a speculative fiction story. So, uh, my the question I think is, how do you actually do that though? Like, how do you actually build a world? Um, what are some of the things? Like some you would practical. Do, what are the practical things? The, like practical ways you would build a world? Yeah, like you build out the. So, so, could you give some examples of like? Once you have that sort of basic idea now, this premise, right? I'm gonna bring these golden age characters into I love crafty and nightmare.
1: Okay, well let's not, how much time do we have? Do we have time for this? Let's not have me talk about how I would do it. Let's do it right now, right? So let's pick a genre. Someone pick a genre. Horror. Horror, plus now give me an opposing genre.
2: Science fiction.
1: Horror, science fiction, that's more parallel. So horror, science fiction, give me something opposing. Romance or comedy. Okay, so if we're going to write a romantic comedy, right? Set in a horror science fiction setting, right? Those rules that we have set for ourselves by establishing genre come with certain tropes, right? Things that people will assume and become your shorthand. So what are some shorthands of a romantic comedy? What are some things that always happen?
2: Someone falls in love.
1: They fall in love. With whom?
2: Uh, well, it depends on what kind of romantic comedy you're looking for. If it's heterosexual, then a man falls in love with a woman or a woman falls in love with a man.
1: Okay. And who are they? Are they usually the person that is best suited to them?
2: Uh, a lot of the time, no. no.
1: No. So there's a trope, right? So you have someone who falls in love with someone who is unsuited to them. Now let's look at that through the lens of horror and science fiction. What are the two most unsuited things that could fall in love in a horror or science fiction? Right, what are some tropes of science fiction, yes? It's
2: like the monster, like the
1: villain and then like a normal person or the hero. Right, so you could have your, let's like if it was a slasher film set on a space station, right? And the uh, slasher now, if we follow these tropes, has someone that they're actually in love with, right? And the rom-com elements are happening with them and this other person while the other person is telling them like, oh my god, there's a killer on this station, <laughs> right? And now we've built a world, right? We've built a world by simply adhering to the genre tropes. That part's easy. Ideas are worthless, right? Executing that idea. If every one of us in this room went away and spent the month doing 2000 words a day, all the novels that we turned in, right, would be different, very different. And all of them could be sent to the same agency and maybe four or five of them could be published because they'd be so different, you wouldn't even know that it came from the same rule set because the secret ingredient is the actual labor, right? People forget that there, between the idea and the execution is maybe a 1,000 or 10,000 hours of actual labor, right? And a lot changes. Um, the way to think about it for me is that movement gives shape to form. And I stole that from Leonardo da Vinci, right? But A fish is the shape that a fish is because of how it must move in water, right? And you can't separate the one from the other. So once you establish the rules, right? We've established our rom-com meets horror science fiction. The story takes its own shape without us having to do much about it.
0: Just sort of analytically thinking through like what's gonna happen, what would have to happen if, you know, for the killer to,
1: to... To fall in love. How could a killer Right, would fall in he, love.
0: He or she fall in love with. Well, what How if would he try to get that g- girl? Let's say in this example. Yeah,
1: right. What if? Uh, so here, I just thought of one. Like a
0: cat leaving. I think of like the cat leaves, you know, dead birds for you.
1: There you go. The display. It. So imagine you had <laughs> an like, alien <laughs> intelligence that observed that a cat leaves dead birds for its master as a show of love. So this woman now suddenly has all these dead people being presented to her in this space station constantly
0: it's like she's horrified by all these like she turns the corners like a person gussied up yeah but, but it's supposed to be like a valentine <laughs> this is what i mean right
1: if you didn't understand that a valentine like val- for valentine's day we give people hearts if you didn't if you didn't understand right if you didn't understand what that meant if you took that too literally now you got a horror movie right in fact, I think we just came up with a pretty great it's
0: one. It's actually a pretty good premise. Right? Yeah. And you guess, but I can see you just saying, like, so the, in terms of like, once you have the premise, it's in some ways, like, you're paying attention to the premise. Yeah. So with Midnight City, you've got your core sort of initial premise. Yeah. Um, and, and, which, in case it isn't clear, <laughs> is. Um, what? Oh, it's not clear.
1: Um, the, you want me to tell them the premise well, I mean, of I the book? I can tell them, but you can. You I can. want them to tell me what the
0: premise of the book is. That's more fun. I actually get creative writing students to do this as usually in the editing process right (laughs) I say like give somebody your story and have them tell you the plot
1: yeah and it's a great exercise like I had to present the plot to the publisher and then present the book back and then say hey this is a different plot than you sold us and be like yeah Yeah. (laughs) right uh so that's fine does anyone want to heart like give me a sum up okay summation
2: I got that uh, what you're trying to say is superheroes aren't real. They're actually vigilantes and henceforth criminals.
1: Okay, so that is a function of the plot, a function of the plot. But is that what the story is about? Right? And this is what your professor is trying to have you learn how to determine. The difference between plot and meaning, yeah. right? Yeah. What happens in a story, and a way to think about it, <clears throat> for you guys who are thinking about writing, I'll steal this from joss whedon he has a problematic thing going on in the world right now but his writing is good he separates screenwriting between movements and moments right a movement is what happens in the plot and a moment is a moment between characters that makes you feel something important right so when a professor is asking what a book is about he's saying don't tell me what happened in it the movements tell me what the moments meant what are they really about so the movements in this story are like people in masks fighting monsters like that's pretty dumb right but the moments underneath it are what the story is actually about right yeah it has to be really generic like
2: things aren't what they seem
1: yeah it's pretty simple i told you writing's easy <laughs> right like things aren't as they seem like it's not a profound judgment right it's just an exploration of things aren't what they seem by way of Golden Age characters fight H.G. Wells and H.G. H.P. Uh, Lovecraft monsters, mm-hmm. right? I set my parameters and then I do a very simple story within that and see what happens.
0: You've got some very clear tropes functioning too, like in, like in horror, for example, you often have this passage space between, uh, like literally underground. In this case, they're going to the cellar, yeah, uh, and you know, as if entering like some hellish underworld where now everything, as you say, everything's kind of reversed. Everything's you know not as it seemed before uh, all the children are there but then other monsters right um, you know in some ways it's a very clear like trope shift in, in other ways like um, I th- yeah that part you're talking
1: about I thought I was being super transparent um, in that like this notion of superheroes take on superstitious elements so that people are afraid of them right they put on they dress up like monsters they run around in the dark rawr, be a scared of me if you're a criminal right and then they face off against actual supernatural elements and so i literally had the way into that like the secret layer that is the secret layer of the superhero underneath that secret layer was the world of the monsters which is uh you know not particularly clever but it made for a fun
0: literally like getting under the layer just going one layer under but in terms of world building i think there's where you've got like a parallel you've got these two genres let's say the superhero he has a secret lair underneath. Batman's got his lair underneath the house. Yeah. And then you've got the horror story where, like, again, the monster has a lair. Yeah. Uh, and you're going into, often down into the earth where the monsters dwell or have come from, et cetera. And So you're, in some ways, I think your world building there is you're noticing, okay, there's this parallel, so how do I bring them together? Yeah. How do you, what about another example? So another example here is a number of people have questions about the red phone. Mm -hmm. Uh, so how did you come up with the element of the red phone and like actually build that into the world
1: I stole it from Adam West Batman right it's me making a direct reference to Adam West Batman the red phone would ring right and it's like oh it's the commissioner right Um, and I thought so the the notion here is that superheroes are a lie the notion of superheroes in and of themselves as they exist in comics in the world of Midnight City is just PR So there are comics published in the world and you get to see those covers. That's what the cover interrupts are. You're seeing the PR of that world, how they present superheroes to everyone else, right? Vampire detective, right? Well, that's a lie, right? He's not a vampire at all. He's actually a human who's been hollowed out by an alien, right, so that he can feed on other humans, but they present him as a hero, right? And so it's just, sort of digging out and hollering out those tropes, pardon the expression, yes? I
2: was just thinking, because these superheroes, they use like masks to cover up their real identity, could it be like that the Midnight
1: City is covering up the monsters that are like under the ground? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, like I said, it's not deep, right? It's just fun, <laughs> right? Like the, the horror isn't about whether or not everyone can Everyone wants to fight monsters. It's that we all have a monster that we fought, right? You can put whatever label, you know, you can put addiction on it. You can put your family strife on it. You can put your, uh, the way your horrible professor will not recognize your genius. Whatever the monster is that you're fighting, right? Horror allows us to transpose that experience and for a short time escape into someone else's suffering, right? And know that you also suffer, right? So, yeah, Midnight City is, um it was more complicated to put together than the actual story itself is, that is presented, I think.
0: I think the, I don't think you should minimize the mask idea though, like, because it is in some ways like a very, again, a simple element of, uh, and commonality of the superhero stories. Then like to take the the ma- idea of a mask covering a face and like hiding, the like masks are interesting in terms of identity, because of course, on one hand they hide an identity. And of course, again, masks, common in horror movies yeah. um, but masks you know they hide an identity but in a horror story they actually reveal the pro- true identity Right. and so you have this kind of doubleness of a mask already and then extending it out to the city itself as a sort of mask yeah. um, for this you know sunken city in a manner of speaking I, like the, it's a very clean uh, uh, development from one to the other but I, I don't think it's necessarily a simplistic one uh, because again you do have like a lot of the same sort of Um, notions
1: okay so a practical element for writers in the room or creatives in the room is that um making something is easy refining it down to its base elements is the is the important part right when you're representing it so while it is not explicitly stated that midnight city is the mask over the ancient city right it is intentional that those are present right, to reflect the notion of masks throughout the story, right? So that if someone then asks you, why this, why that, and that someone could be a reviewer, an editor, the publisher, any of those things, why you've made certain decisions in the story, you must have a cogent reason for it or it will be edited out, right? And so why books develop themes is because the author uh, is fighting to maintain the core of their idea through the editorial and publishing process which is very difficult because everyone wants to tell you how better to have it fit into the marketplace, how better to have it fit into present day conversations, how better to have it fit into the genre conventions. Everyone is having you carve away something. And so you want to have stuff that you're willing to carve away and stuff that you're willing, you're unwilling to carve away and you need a reason for it. And so the reason that authors usually use is that it's thematically tied to the main
0: story. I've heard of people. This is kind of a screenwriting trick. Just um, a, 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 in screenwriting, especially, people are trying. They have to come in with their fingers, and they have to change things. Oh yeah, but uh, so a common like. Well, you and I have is, both been that. We wrote trick, for a show. A trick for screenwriting is when you turn the draft in, you put in put in some things that you will just you you do want to actually take out. <laughs> mm-hmm. You yeah, that you know are no good and that you then will take out. Then the person then so there are like things that they can point to and go oh change that you know great idea boss you (laughs) take out this thing you always intended to take out and that way they don't touch this other thing that really matters the
1: danger is the
0: danger is they like it yeah the (laughs) danger is they're like ooh, more of
1: this yeah that's the danger yeah um so it's it's increasingly why in creative fields you see people who work with the same people over and over again right there's a danger to that because then you end up in an echo chamber, but there's a benefit to it in that you don't have to constantly fight for your ideas because people trust you.
0: Well, there's a question related to that, which is, you know, what are some of the writers uh, that you, writers and artists that you know and that, you know, maybe are friends with who actually have had some sort of influence? Like like what have you learned from, like from
1: people around you? Like from my direct?
0: Yeah, there's a number of questions about kind of like how do you how have you found like one like how did you get connected to like a community of other people around you doing things and two like what do you kind of like what have you kind of learned from them like who are the specific people that you maybe have
1: okay so I think that boils down to a question about like how do I break in right like how do I get at I things the uh, if you are trying to get at a community for your own benefit that community will leave you up right I mean, think of your own friend group, right? Whoever you hang out with on a regular basis, if there's someone who suddenly was like, hey, can I come? Hey, can I come? Hey, can I come? Hey, can I borrow your car? Hey, can I sleep in your house? <laughs> hey, can I wear your sweater? You'd be like, "Ah, get out of here, man, right? You don't want that person. However, if someone comes to you and says, hey, I heard you're moving on Thursday, I'll help, right? And they have no wish to get anything more than presenting themselves to you to help, then you are more willing to provide them with help when they require it. And so, uh, many years ago, and you were part of it, this is how we actually got to know each other. Mm-hmm. Um, we were part of Dennis Cooley's advanced creative writing class. It ended. I didn't want it to end. I just thought I was getting so much from this group of people. The class itself was secondary to the group of people. So I said, hey everybody, this Wednesday night writing class, let's have it at my house every week now instead. And, you know, 10, 15 people from that class showed up every week for years to workshop their writing. And, you know, of that list,
0: five of us ended up winning Manitoba Book Awards. My way into the community was more kind of connected to that class in a different way. It was that, you know, kind of getting this community that revolved around your this writing group you, you continued but the other thing was we had if you, I don't know if you remember we had to do a chapbook project in that class oh yeah that's right and yeah, so yeah, yeah. i did a chapbook uh, and i you know published a bunch of copies to give way to i thought well i'll use this to give away to people yeah and then um I, then once i had done one i was like well maybe i should do more of these that was your martian press um, thing right martian press yeah. so at the first chapbook of the martian press machine. is my own work but then yeah. what i did after that was like i was like because i was thinking along the lines you were talking about i was like it's like, you know, it's good to, like, publish something on my own. I can show people and, you know, stuff. And kind of, they can kind of get a sense of who I am and what my yeah. work is. I go, but but really I think would be more interesting or to other people and, like, useful to the community would be, like, if I published other people. Yeah. Rather than just publishing myself all the time. Well, so that's the thing. So I started just publishing the people in that group and other people around. Yeah.
2: Me.
0: And so, like, the Martian Press very quickly. I mean, it kind of became just a thing. So in some ways, like my way into like the broader community was like becoming a publisher, <laughs> right? And it's like so now. Okay, no longer so the way to characterize I, like, that though, in there, like trying to get yeah connected. You're to trying people. to give something to but other people, people instead. Yeah, yeah, and it's more like, um, and like people have a reason to like talk to me if rather than like. Okay, me but just the, trying to get something. The reason the that writers forever.
1: group worked, the way it did was because they were from all kinds of different voices. There were screenwriters, there were poets, there were fiction writers, there were nonfiction writers, there were people who wrote from all avenues. And we had the one rule that being nice didn't help you get better, but that we weren't interested in talking about the story in general, Mm. only the notes that you asked for. So when we shared stories, the rule was, you hand out whatever work you want to hand out to be read for the next week. And on it, you'd have a list, a small list, of specific things you wanted feedback on. And we would only discuss those specific things so that it became useful to you directly. You write a story you're not sure if the dialogue works. So you make a few notes specifically about the dialogue. Well the poet tells you a better word to use every time, right? Every time the poet tells you a better word you can use. Right? The screenwriter tells you about the pacing of your dialogue every time, right? The fiction writer is like, "You know what actually this this is This isn't any, it's not even useful to you. It doesn't serve the plot, right? The nonfiction writer is like, hey, did you check those sources even? Like, does this character even know what they're talking about? And suddenly you have a specific part of your story being workshopped specifically by the skill set of specific individuals based on their strengths. And man, and you don't have to take it. Like you don't have to agree with them or even make the changes, but you know specifically how and why they want the changes made. And now you understand how readers are. Every reader comes to the story with a different thing. And you get to decide which part of it you want. If you only share your horror stories with other horror writers, your stories will actually get worse, right? If you share your horror stories with people who write a vast variety of things, your stories will get better because
0: the skill set has expanded. We've we'll time for a, minute, a few more questions. Yeah. If you'll have question. Uh,
2: yeah. Um, in, in those like peer review uh, sessions that you had, where you had like er, uh, other people, uh, like read read your stuff and, and uh, critique it on different points that you would specifically outline. Would you like allow them to specifically ask for like intentions behind different things that were put down, or was it just like? They just looked at it and analyzed it for what it was. Yeah, so remember,
1: at this point, we weren't strangers to each other, right? Right. We had spent a whole year together workshopping stuff, and the people who showed up again after the class was done wanted that workshop. So you kind of knew who was – like, by the end of this class, right, you kind of know what each of you likes to talk about, right? And you won't realize how well you know what each of you wants to talk about until you leave the classroom setting and sit together to workshops and work – Right. So um, we didn't have to set those kinds of parameters because we kind of knew it anyway.
0: I think there was a rule in the class we took. I, if I remember right, maybe you can correct me. I think the professor, Dennis Cooley, who taught the class had a rule that when people were getting feedback they weren't allowed to defend themselves. Yeah, you couldn't defend yourself. You, you could take notes, but they couldn't answer any yeah. like, question Unless like, they were asked a direct question, yeah. they couldn't
1: answer. Yeah, and that was, an, that was a, such an insightful thing to learn from, an, from a writer who'd been around and suffered the slings and arrows mm-hmm. um, so much more is that you must allow people their point of view into your writing, undefended. You cannot be like, well, that's not what I meant. right? Because if that's what you saw, then it's there. Right? You might not have intended it, but
0: it's there. Right? Or they're just wrong. But, it, but in that case, it still doesn't matter. It doesn't if matter if they're wrong, they're wrong. It doesn't matter. Because if they're
1: wrong, they still were wrong based on this data say, set.
0: I got a review once, and the reviewer said I had made a reference to Kafka. Kafka is the castle, which is run by Count West. West. <laughs> Very small piece of trivia. Even a Kafka fan would not necessarily know Kafka's Count, we- Count West West is the ruler of the Only castle. you would know that. Um, well, not only me, but like it's not It's not a common thing that you would expect someone to know. Right. Anyway, so this reviewer didn't know that. So I made the reference Count West West. The reviewer didn't know what Count West West was, so they Googled it. Fine, reasonable thing to do. they didn't add the word Kafka. So what you get if you Google Count West West without adding the word Kafka is there's some guy who writes Harry Potter fan fiction who calls himself Count West West. And then they just stop their Google there, like, oh, Jonathan must be referencing... In in this poem, by the way, which is explicitly about Kafka's The Castle, um, they're like, oh, he must be referencing Count West West, the Harry Potter fan fiction writer. Why is he doing that? That's stupid. And so they write in the review, like it's kind of dumb that he's like <laughs> referencing this Count West West I'm like what, but it's there. Like, what theirs. do you say though
1: once it's published once it's in the world it's not no I still kind of it's not yours point. anymore <laughs>
0: but there's no point right love it
1: or hate it it's yours now I'm done with it I'm on to other things
0: I don't care if you hate that you already bought it but like in that scenario <laughs> like like the extreme end of like somebody's reactions like they're literally wrong about everything but like who cares? Like well, it right. doesn't matter. So are we? But it, like it doesn't. Like it's fundamentally like you can't do anything with that feedback. We're
1: wrong. Too. Like most of what we said is nonsense. <laughs> they had
0: to pay to be here,
1: right? Right. If anyone should well,
0: be upset, it's these people. It's. I always get a writer in the class, but even if it's just a literature class like this, not a creative writing class, because I think it's really useful to understand um, that literature is pr- not produced like in a vacuum in a, in a tower like it's produced it, there's material considerations and, and as you say like you have a creative vision and you're pursuing creative vision sure but there's also like these things that go into it like oh especially in comics where it's like oh i've got this thing i want to happen i want it to be a surprise well should i put it i guess it has to be on an, an even numbered page yeah your surprises <laughs> have
1: to always be on the page turn so how do Otherwise, I, like, they're not surprises. Or yeah.
0: like, if I want it to be fast-paced, well, in, in comics, to some degree, the pace is a function of how fast people are turning pages. Yeah. And like, uh, so there's like material, like in, in, like material considerations that come into you know the uh, artistic considerations. Like like they're very connected. And I think, and even just the, the that I question, like, how tired are you <laughs> when you write these pages? Like that stuff matters really specifically and materially in terms of what work gets created and then additionally like even historically like where you have say women not as represented in certain genres because they can't literally afford to be doing this work right in certain scenarios yeah. um, and i think like it's important to understand that sort of thing you I even mean, it's easy when you look back at shakespeare or something and you're like okay well you know he knew this guy (laughs) maybe that guy like helped him figure out this thing Uh, but sometimes people don't even recognize that
1: right well every creative work is a compromise right and it's it's just true it's why so many books are dedicated to the editor right because you are everything is a you have a vision and it has to survive the process of publication And if it comes out halfway close to what you are, you're happy, and if it doesn't, maybe you're unhappy. But if you cannot, if you're a person who is incapable of compromise, you are incapable of living a creative life as a job. Um, Period, right? You have to be willing to compromise. Um, But you should also have some things that you will not compromise. Some things that are deal breakers, right? That once you agree to make a book, you're willing to compromise only so far before you're willing to break the deal. And I've been in a position where I've had books almost published and then we're going to break the deal. Then I'm out. Right. I'd rather be not paid. Right. And keep the work than right be paid and have a work that is
0: not representative of what I want into the world. Well, with that, uh, thanks right. very much uh, for thanks coming. Thanks again to Gregory Kamichik and thank you for listening. Uh, again, the show notes for this episode are available at jonathanball.com/16. Uh, there's a part 1 of this, another um, set of questions that Kamichik uh, answers at jonathanball.com/15. Um, and if you like uh, this podcast and this episode, uh, please do me a favor. Uh, take a second uh, right now while you're listening to me say this. Take a second and just share it with somebody else. However you're listening to it, just find the sharing option. And just send it to somebody who you think you know would also benefit uh, from checking this podcast out. Um, have a great week and keep writing the wrong way.